Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers. 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One. Because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in astrophysics, nanoscience, and neuroscience. The Kavli Prize is a partnership among the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research, and the U.S.-based Kavli Foundation in Los Angeles, California. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Little bumps, even one 500th diameter of a human hair, you can sense that by running your finger over it, which is really mind-boggling. I don't even mentally can imagine that. But at the same time, of course, there is what we call affective touch. And especially during COVID, we've all appreciated the pleasure of hugging a a friend or a family member that we've missed because of separation. So this whole idea that, you know, you can use it to realize what's going on in your world, but also it's very strongly attached to our, you know, emotional being, makes it complicated and very interesting, and a lot of it we still don't understand. That's Artem Potaputian. He discovered how our sense of touch works. It's the last of our five senses to be understood at the level of molecules, and it turned out that touch is unique among the senses with a wide range of tasks that include how we know where our limbs are without looking at them, and the ways in which we respond to pain. For his discovery, Artem Potaputian was awarded the Kavli Prize in 2020, followed last year by the Nobel Prize. This is the second of our special episodes of Clear and Vivid, leading up to this year's Kavli Prize announcements. And in this episode, we're also celebrating another winner of both the Kavli Prize and later the Nobel Prize. That's Emmanuel Charpentier, the French researcher who teamed up with Jennifer Doudna in the U.S. to develop the gene editing system known as CRISPR-Cas9, the technology that's revolutionized medical research and is on its way to revolutionizing medicine itself. I started to work on the mechanism, and then I reached out to Jennifer Donna, and we 
we finalized <laughs> the story and ultimately uh, developed uh, this technology that was relatively easy to develop because the natural mechanism was giving us the, the clue of how, uh, how to use the system for laboratory and engineering purposes. So that has a lot of implications in, in biology and medicine. I'll be talking with Emmanuel Charpentier in the second half of this episode. But first, my conversation with Artem Potaputian. You have such an interesting story, which begins in Beirut, right? How, how old were you when the Civil War started there? So I was born in 1967, and I think I was eight years old when the Civil War started. Most of the country was divided by religion in the sense that most of Muslims lived in West Beirut, most of Christians lived in East Beirut. And Armenians are mostly Christian, but we were thought to be the only ones who were kind of neutral in this whole mess. And so we were allowed to live wherever. And since my parents' jobs were both in West Beirut, we lived in the West and often went back from West to East. So one day when I was 18 years old, I actually went to a, a party in the East Side with my friends and uh, I was in a very good mood, stayed with a friend early in the morning, walking back to West Beirut. And I heard snipers. The The sniper sounds is very characteristic. And when you hear it, you know it. So I started running as fast as I could. Uh, when I got into the West Side, I met uh, a few militias who were seeing this young 18-year-old run through the streets of... <laughs> <laughs> running. Not a good, not a good sign. <laughs> that, was not, that was not very good. And so they waved me over. And then um, they looked at my... ID passport, which says Christian on it. So it was looking pretty bad for a while. <laughs> but I think further questioning, they realized that I was this uh, uh, really kid who didn't know any better. And so after questioning me for a few hours, they let me go. But that was the day that I that I went home and I remember telling my mom, I'm out of here. I just, I, I can't, I don't want to stay here anymore. And uh, we were lucky enough that we had green card already because we had relatives in the United States. So within a few months from that, I was, I already came to Los Angeles and uh, have been in California the last uh, 30 plus 40 years almost. How did you get interested in science? Because I, I remember reading somewhere that you were not aware even that science was a profession. That's exactly right. I was interested in, in biology and in Lebanon, which I went to an excellent university called American University of Beirut. My main opportunity it was to go to medical school. So when I came to US as well, I thought uh, medical school was my calling. And the big event that changed my life is in so many ways this happens to people. It was a UCLA is a big classes, you know, it's not a small school, it's a big public school. And I thought I wasn't getting to know the professors for them to write me a good letter of recommendation to go to medical school. And so I said, oh, one way to do this is to work in a laboratory. So that was my <laughs> cynical approach to this, that I could get the professor to write a good letter. But while working in a lab, I just absolutely fell in love with it. It's funny because so many kids go to class and learn how the advances of biology or chemistry are. And then you think that working in a lab is going to be very similar, but it's completely different. 
because you're not being told facts and things that are already known. Instead, you're walking into the lab with a question that is unknown, and you're doing experiments to find out if that's your thinking is true or not. And when you do find out, you're the first one ever to know it. I mean, this kind of joy that one gets from science, it's so hard to describe. And unfortunately, you don't learn in a classroom. That's such a good description of the difference between discovery and having information pumped into you. Absolutely. So when you when you were in the lab where you really started to get infatuated with the process of science, is that when you began to be interested in the sense of touch? That was a process as well. I actually initially was studying um, how fruit fly embryos form. So very, very different from uh, touch sensation. So one of the great things about science training is that there is this unwritten rule that in your career, you should change topics a few times. And it's such a great idea because if you study something and you know it very well, and then you go into a new field and people who've been in it for 10 to 15 years are looking at it through a lens that's very different than an outsider. And so in science, it's really encouraged, especially during your training, to make these massive shifts in what you study. I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing, both on a personal level and for the fields of science that we focus on. One of the things that you've gotten special attention for is temperature receptors, right? And following that with touch. Yes. Are they very different? Did they represent a, the kind of change you're talking about? Or, or are they very similar? In this case, a bit more similar in the sense that the way I talk about our work for the last 22 years, and you're right, it started with temperature sensation and then went on to be about pressure, mechanical sensing, is that most cells in our bodies communicate through chemicals. So this is this could be a hormone, you know, neurotransmitter. So our interest has been how about physical forces? And this includes, of course, temperature and pressure sensing. It's something that was mainly ignored. It's one of the five major senses, but it's something that we didn't understand at all. We didn't even understand how you would sense it, let alone what you would do with this information. So when I put my finger on an elevator button, I'm feeling the, the pressure. Yes. And that's an extremely sensitive form of taking in information, isn't it? Absolutely. So the... Uh, humans and many animals have incredible ability to sense, touch. One of the estimations has been that little bumps, even one 500th diameter of a human hair, you can sense that by running your finger over it, which is wow. really mind-boggling. I don't even mentally can imagine that. Yeah. And one thing that's very special about sense of touch is there's this whole what we call discriminatory touch that we can, you know, distinguish an elevator button from a yogurt touching your finger. Um, yes. But at the same time, of course, there is what we call affective touch. And especially during COVID, we've all appreciated the, the, the pleasure of hugging a, a friend or a family member that we've missed because of separation. So this whole idea that you know, you can use it to realize what's going on in your world, but also it's very strongly attached to our 
you know, emotional being makes it complicated and very interesting. And a lot of it we still don't understand. But it's so good to go down this list of various kinds of touch because we take touch so for granted. Pain, um, pain when you hit your finger with a hammer, all, all of these things are connected, aren't they? Absolutely. Um, I think of pain as the flip side of touch where um, it's a, we talk about it in, in the sense of threshold. If it's a low threshold force, like you touching an elevator button, it's touch. If, uh, as you said, a hammer hits your finger, it's become painful and it's noxious and it has very different responses uh, from us. One of the unique things about somatosensation, which what I call the, that includes temperature, pressure, touch, and pain, all of this together, one of the unique things about it is that it, it varies during inflammation and injury, your threshold changes. Mm. The easiest ex example I can give you is if you have sunburn, then just a warm shower or someone touching your shoulder now becomes painful. So all that thing I talked to you about, low threshold is touch, high threshold is pain, kind of goes out the window, which means that this demarcation of what is touch versus what is pain is dynamic. Um, and sunburn, of course, is not a big, you know, medical condition, but many people are, who suffer from neuropathic pain, for example, experience this kind of sensitization. And it's something that we don't have good treatments for. And that gets into chronic pain. Absolutely. So chronic pain is a condition that pain stays, even the stimulus that initially caused it is gone. And it usually can last months to years. Sometimes it never heals. And neuropathic pain is one type of chronic pain. So is your work in understanding how these receptors work, is that going to help us get a handle on chronic pain? We think so. We think there's a very good chance of this because many drugs are made against molecules that are in the brain, which do many other things. When some people talk about side effects, that's what that means. It's affecting other pathways. So the idea is if you find these peripheral sensors that are specialized only to do this, and if you can, let's say, turn their activation level down, you could potentially get relief from pain without affecting other pathways. But the problem with this is that, um, so the molecule, one of the molecules that we worked on called PSO2 is responsible for touch, proprioception, but also this pain sensitization. So we know the pain sensitization part, if you blocked PSO2, you would get relief from it but you also want sense touch and nobody wants to do <laughs> nobody wants to do that and so in this case you cannot imagine you would take a pill that would block all of your pso2 that's not very practical but you could for example if you have an uh, arthritic knee uh, have a local application of a pso2 blocker in the future these are i should emphasize that medicines don't exist right now Drug discovery is a very slow process that follows 10, 15, 20 years after the research. But we can imagine how this could be very useful. When you talk about proprioception, that's a, a big word for, for most of us. 
Absolutely. But it, essentially, it's what? It's knowing where your body is in relation, where parts of your body are in relation to other parts of your body? Yes. Uh, another way to think about it is where your limbs are in space. I like to think about it, it's your most fundamental consciousness of your physical being. So if you close your eyes, you know exactly where your head is, where your arms are, where your feet are. You have an image of what space you occupy. So, so this is the kind of start of proprioception. So while we're talking, people listening can close their eyes, reach out their arm and touch their nose and find their nose without opening their eyes. Most Absolutely. of us can do that. Uh, assuming you haven't consumed too much alcohol, you should be able to do this. And uh, that relies on coordination. And the the first signal of this is coming from these mechanosensitive neurons that actually wrap around your various muscles. And from how much the muscles are stretched, you synthesize this image of where your arm is. You're actually not sensing the exact location of every muscle. It's just an image that forms in your head. But the source of this is knowing how much each of your muscles are stretched. So this is an amazing description you just gave me. The little tiny parts of my body are all sending back messages to the brain in terms of how much that muscle involved is being stretched to form this gesture of aiming toward my nose. And the brain collects all this information, processes it, and directs the arm to where I want it to go. Exactly. And, and, and you said already most people don't know what proprioception is. And I find this absolutely amazing because I think it's one of the most, if not your most important sense. So there are actually individuals who do not have piezo 2. And these people not only don't sense touch, but they don't have proprioception and they grow up having very difficult time standing, walking, all of these things that we take for granted. So if it's so important, you say, why don't we know about it? I think one of the keys to this is the lack of our ability to turn it off. If you can't turn it off, you can take it for granted. So you can close your eyes and just like that, you have a very easy imagination of what a blind person would would feel. Fingers in your ear, you can turn off sound. That's right. Noise-canceling headphones. <laughs> you can't turn off proprioception. You cannot turn off proprioception. That's the only reason why it's not taught in every high school and elementary school is one of your most important senses. People take it for granted. It's kind of uh, amusing. Now, piezo 2 is essential to proprioception. That's right. What is piezo 2? So, Piezo 2 is what we call an ion channel. All you need to know about that is that it's a very fast signaling molecule, and it does either of two things. It's either off or on. And this protein sits lazily in the outside of your cell where the fatty layer protects it. And when it's stretched, it's open. When it's not stretched, it closes. So in a way, it's very simple. But this stretch sensitivity allows new ions to come into the cell, which is sufficient to start this neuron to fire, which tells the next neuron, hey, I detected what I'm supposed to be detecting. So in a way, they're molecular machines. They are pressure sensors. 
So did you find piezo-2? Did you discover it? That's right. How did you do that? It must be very tiny. That's right. So my postdoctoral fellow, Bertrand Coast, decided to find it in a cell that was mechanosensitive. And then we used these new technologies available where you can delete one gene at a time and then ask, does the cell still respond to mechanical force? And it sounds tedious, but he had to do lots of work to come up with the proper list of the genes among the 22,000 that could potentially code for this. And one by one, he would remove one from the cell and ask, does the pressure sensing still work? And after repeating this 72 times, which took him a whole year, when he took out number 72, the cell was quiet. It did not respond to this pushing of it. And we knew we had found it then. Did he get all excited when he saw that? He's a very, very calm guy, so he didn't. He came actually into my office and very calmly said, I got it, and I just didn't even understand what he was saying. <laughs> what he got. <laughs> yeah, we were confused for a while, but then as I understood what he found, it was obviously very, very exciting. This boy running from the sniper in Beirut discovers a part of nature nobody had ever seen before. Quite and a story, isn't it? it it's amazing. As your mind ranges over this in the time that's passed since you made the discovery, what do you suppose this discovery will lead to as it translates into medicine? I mean, the first thing I want to emphasize is that um, my main interest remains in the basic science. I just think that it's a wonderful thing that we can um, ponder, discover how life works, even if it had no medical application. I think that's one of the uh, wonderful things that our society has supported and hopefully will continue to support. Having said that, of course, this has massive implications for uh, not just pain, but as we study this more, we're finding out that these same pressure sensors are involved in sensing when your bladder is full, also, when your blood pressure goes up, and these are required to keep blood pressure constant. And so when we started studying this, we never thought these other applications were part of what we were looking for. And that's the beauty of discovery science for the sake of doing science, is that applications will come from directions that you could never anticipate. And that's the number one reason to support basic science. But I'm very excited about uh, potentials. We even discovered that the sister pro protein of piezo-2, piezo-1, is expressed in red blood cells, and manipulating the levels of piezo-1 can be beneficial to, uh, to be against malaria infection. So who would have thought pressure-sensing molecules that we would work on could um, take us to a road that would someday even look into malaria infection, which is still a problem in this on this planet. So it's kind of a brave new world for us to venture into these new fields, new biology, new diseases, and again, just keep asking the same question, what's the role of pressure sensing in these processes? Well, this, this has been just wonderful. Congratulations on your Nobel and your Kavli 
and, and many other awards that I'm sure you've accumulated because of this passion for basic science, which I'm so glad to see you have. Thank you so much. It's uh, such a joy to talk to you. When we come back from our break, I talk with another Codley Prize winner who has a passion for basic science. She also always has had her eye on the possible applications of her research. That's Emmanuel Charpentier, who teamed up with fellow Codley laureate Jennifer Doudna to develop the gene editing tool known as CRISPR-Cas9. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in astrophysics, nanoscience, and neuroscience that transform our understanding of the very big, the very small, and the very complex. From scientific breakthroughs like the discovery of CRISPR-Cas9 and the detection of gravitational waves, to inventing new fields of research— Kavli Prize laureates push the limits of what we know and advance science in ways that could not have been imagined. The Kavli Prize is a partnership among the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research, and the U.S.-based Kavli Foundation in Los Angeles, California. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. This is Clear and Vivid, and now on to my conversation with Emmanuel Charpentier. This is great. You took part in such an amazing change in the history of biology. It's such a treat to be able to talk to you in person. You and Jennifer Doudna worked on CRISPR-Cas9, which has revolutionized gene editing. Do I have it right that you borrowed a mechanism from bacteria that allowed you to to cut DNA exactly where you want it to be cut. Is that is that something that all bacteria possess that ability or did you did you have in mind one particular one or were you searching for the one that had something? How did you come across that? (laughs) No actually the concept of uh, harnessing natural mechanisms for biotechnology purposes is, is, is not novel, actually. There is a, a treasure of mechanisms still to be discovered that could be very useful for biotechnology and genetic purposes. Um, CRISPR-Cas9, it's a very good example, actually, um, because it's a very simple system among all the CRISPR-Cas systems existing, and so simple that it was very easy to harness it for uh, genetic purposes. And so uh, I started to work on the mechanism and then I reached out to Jennifer Downline. We, we finalized <laughs> the story 
and ultimately uh, developed uh, this technology that was relatively easy to develop because the natural mechanism was giving us the, the clue of how, uh, how to use the system for laboratory and engineering purposes. So it always reflects on, on the fact that, uh, you know, nature offers us a lot of treasure and that we just need to understand nature and we can really use nature to, to, um, help, um, us. Uh, specifically with CRISPR-Cas that has a lot of implications in, in biology and medicine. And in this case, you helped each other understand what nature had to offer. Exactly. How did you and Jennifer Doudna meet? How did you find out that you wanted to collaborate? We met at a conference when uh, we were actually uh, presenting our work on crispr and I approached her and uh, asked her whether she would be interested in establishing uh, um, a collaboration. And so she, uh, yeah, she became uh, excited about the story that I was presenting at the time at the conference, and she agreed to collaborate. And this is how it it, it started. In this case, was a kind of uh, chemistry as well that happened at the first sight, and so we we got along right away. And so we said, yeah, maybe we can work together. But, you know, I could have approached Jennifer and maybe our respective, you know, students, postdocs would not have come along. Uh, however, what was really um, successful in, in our collaboration is that my student and her, her, her postdoc, who were the, the main key players, were really uh, getting along very well. And so uh, they could work uh, together. At the time, we were not using... Uh, the Zoom, which everyone is using, we were using Skype to communicate via video conference. We were also uh, using a lot of the telephone. So we were very much in, in contact. I was wondering how you handled communicating over so many time zones. Oh, yes. Yeah. So this, it's, it's uh, I mean, actually, we had to adapt <laughs> to the American uh, zone and specifically the Californian zone. So it's nine hour uh, difference. But the, the good thing is that me, I was in Sweden and for the last part of, of the work uh, in Sweden, in the north of Sweden, you have a lot of light uh, starting spring and in the summer. And, and so I, I was actually communicating uh, sometimes at 2, 3 a.m. in the morning and taking my bike and going back home and sleeping for a couple of hours and coming back. So this was, <laughs> yes, this was... And you, you mentioned Sweden, which reminds me that you've done your work in so many different countries, the United States, Sweden. I'm talking to you now in Berlin. You've been in Austria. How many languages do you speak? Actually, um, I, I speak French because I'm French. I speak English. I speak just a little bit of German. And uh, I took some classes to try to learn uh, Swedish, but uh, I, I did not go that far. But in, in principle, in the scientific community, yeah, everyone communicates in English, uh, which allows um, mobility. Uh, and also the, the, the way science is, uh, is working, we all evaluate uh, the projects of one another. We all evaluate also... Uh, we have to review uh, the, the publications of uh, one another, so... Having one language and uh, the English, it simplifies a lot <laughs> those processes. You know, I saw your press conference from, uh, I guess, from Berlin when you won the Nobel Prize. Mm -hmm. You made a point of saying that you hoped 
you and Jennifer Dowden to winning the Nobel Prize would call attention to the contribution that women have to make. Tell, tell me more about that. I mean, I think this story is, is very good, the Chris Barkas 9 story, because the story is about a, a collaboration uh, with uh, two female uh, scientists from two different countries. And I think it, it's good that young female scientists or uh, young fellows who, who would like to, to have a career in science can see uh, that a story indeed can arise from a collaboration, can arise from female scientists and can have uh, very uh, important uh, implications in very fast. And I think this, it's, it's, it's very important that they see uh, success stories in, in a way. The other thing you talked about in that press conference, which I found interesting, was that you hoped that this award would bring attention to fundamental science, basic science, the importance of it. Would it be fair to say that we wouldn't have CRISPR if it weren't for basic science that didn't have much of any objective in finding applicable uses for it? Uh, yes and no. Uh, I think uh, every every uh, scientist working in uh, in the academic field is by definition curious and by definition uh, will uh, seek to work on on a project uh, by pure curiosity and and for the sake of acquiring uh, you know more knowledge and. And for the, the, the beauty of doing science in a way and of discovering uh, wonderful mechanisms. Um, but you know, in, in our days, uh, one has to justify the funding that we get and that is used uh, for, for the research. Working on bacteria in my case was very important to always justify, uh, uh, you know, the project that uh, I wanted to, to, to start with regard to what kind of implication as those projects will have. So in, in the case of CRISPR, indeed, uh, there was, uh, at least this is what was part of my grant applications, that uh, if we were successful to, to find a, a, a mechanism, then this mechanism could be exploited uh, for genetic engineering and also to treat uh, human diseases. So this was very clear in, in, in my mind. Uh, I actually... Um, uh, called up some uh, some friends and colleagues, and we we started uh, um, a biotech uh, that is uh, known as uh, CRISPR therapeutics. So um, we co-founded it in 2013 to um, focus on on genetic disorders. So uh, there are some first clinical trials that I have shown some success uh, to treat uh, diseases such as beta thalassemia and sickle cell diseases, and there are other programs that are currently. Uh, ongoing that are also to use the technology in uh, in uh, cancer immunotherapy. Uh, so uh, the idea to engineer uh, genetically immune cells and that will recognize uh, the sick cells of, of cancer patients. There is also a, a program that uh, has been highlighted uh, a couple of months ago. Um, also the use of, of CRISPR-Cas to treat uh, type 1 uh, diabetes. So you have a, a large panel of, of diseases that uh, are now uh, um, targeted by the CRISPR-Cas technology. Having said this, you have a lot of, of uh, implication of CRISPR-Cas in medicine, not as a, as a direct medicine, as uh, I just explained, 
but also in uh, all the steps of research and development that uh, uh, are uh, very complex steps to not only find uh, new targets uh, for therapeutics, uh, but also to uh, test uh, the new therapeutics in development, whereby the CRISPR technologies has really make the difference, so really enhancing the ability uh, to for screens, for other types of, of methodologies that are really boosting uh, the, the discovery of, of new drugs. So it's really uh, a large impact as a, as a very powerful gene editing technology. So a large impact in research and development in, uh, in biomedicine. When you heard about the researcher in China who had done gene editing using CRISPR on embryos of two twins, what was your immediate reaction? Did, were you gripped with fear? Was it disappointment? Were you concerned that it might spread? What, what, what did you feel at that point? I was point? extremely disappointed and extremely um, angry <laughs> that, uh, that uh, this um, could happen. The idea of using CRISPR like any other gene editing technology or genetic technology that uh, uh, has been existing over the past 50 years, so the, the idea to use genetic technologies in general for human enhancement, it's, it's, it's not new. By human enhancement, you mean things like greater intelligence, blue eyes, blonde hair? Exactly. Um, it, it's not new yet. I was very um, upset and uh, surprised that uh, a team in China uh, could um, actually really uh, de facto use uh, the technology for, for designer babies. As far as I'm concerned, uh, this was uh, uh, designer babies that uh, would uh, carry a mutation that would allow them to uh, to get uh, immune against HIV, but that this mutation could also lead to a lot of other problems in the meantime, and the technology is not ready for this. So in a way, I was not completely, uh, how do you say, um, I still believe that the technology is not ready for, um, for these kind of applications, but I wish as well that, uh, that these kind of applications are not are not happening. Uh, I think that the, the, really the, the, the purpose of CRISPR-Cas9 is to use it for biotechnology and, and biomedical purposes for treating patients and not for human enhancement. So you make me think of a question that sort of borders on ethics, but is more in the realm of our limited knowledge of the complexity of the, of the body of the biological system. So many factors seem to contribute to a disease, for instance. Exactly. With the best of intentions, how can you be sure you're not making a change in DNA that will persist when you may not realize you're interrupting a process in the wrong way? Because you don't know all the elements involved, how can you how can you guard against that? Exactly, and that's why the technology right now has, has still its limitation when it is to use CRISPR as a direct medicine, uh, and that is why uh, the clinical most of the clinical trials that have started uh, um, recently 
are really focused on combining gene editing and cell therapy. So it's really, uh, um, how do you say, uh, genetically engineered cells in the laboratories and then verifying that uh, the technology has changed or has mutated a specific gene or changed a specific gene, the gene we wanted to change and mutate, but that no other changes have been uh, triggered on uh, during the manipulation. And, and that's why it's uh, gene, gene editing and cell therapy allows uh, to make sure that uh, the, no other changes occur on, on the genome. Well, it's reassuring to know that both you and Jennifer Doudna, who made this breakthrough discovery, are equally concerned about the misuse of it and the awareness at the very beginning of the possible misuse seems to be as important as the discovery itself. So thank you for the discovery and for your caution. Thank you very much. And thank you for this wonderful talk. I've really enjoyed meeting you. Thank you for having me. It was a, a great pleasure and honor to, to be invited. Thank you very much. Artem Patapoutian is professor and Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator at Scripps Research in La Jolla, California. Emmanuel Charpentier is director of the Max Planck Institute for Infection Biology in Berlin. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. We'll be continuing with our conversations with Kavli Prize laureates when the winners of this year's prizes are awarded next Wednesday. But first, in our regular Tuesday slot, Graham and I will be giving you a preview of next season's Clear and Vivid, beginning June 14th. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. 
Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.